We, uh, I just want to share some, some thoughts this evening and slightly different from uh, what I would normally speak about. And the reason for that is that you have joined us, if you are a guest, at a, a kind of a key point for us as a church. In, um, on the 27th of October, we're going to go from having f- three services on a Sunday to having four services on a Sunday. And we're going to be, um, in order to do that, we're going to be multiplying our morning service, which currently is one service that meets at 10.30. It's going to become uh, two services, one that meets at 9 a.m. and one that meets at 11.30. And so... Um, as, as that's really kind of part of a journey that we're on where we're, where we're seeking to respond to what God is doing among us. And uh, what he's doing is very wonderful. Um, he's bringing people to himself. And so we're seeing lots of people come to faith, which is fantastic. And lots of people join our community uh, who are moving into the area and things like that as well. And so in order to, um, we don't know a lot as a church, but we have realized that unless we have space in our hearts and our lives and also in our buildings for people who um, don't yet know Jesus, we're probably missing something really massive. So we're trying to respond to that. We have a building project that's kind of happening, but that is kind of chugging on in the background and uh, it will take a little while before that is a reality for us, although it's moving in the right direction. So um, we need to, and we've realized that we just need to, we need to do something sooner than when that's going to be. And so having prayed and talked and discussed and, you know, shared it with the church and done surveys and done everything we can possibly think of, uh, we've now got to decision time and um, this is what we're going to be doing. Um, and so we're aware uh, that there are costs involved in that. Now, for, for those of you who are here as guests, um, fear not, because I hope some of what I'm going to say is going to be relevant wherever you go to church. Um, also, for those who are here, and this 7 p.m. is your service, there's still going to be a real relevance. Um, but we're aware that there is going to be a cost to this um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, we need to recruit teams, and you know we're going to be running two services in the morning rather than one service. That the worship team, who are heroes, who have already been here since 2:30 this afternoon, um, and rehearsing and doing the morning, the 4:30, and then doing the 7 p.m. will now have to do two morning services, and they'll be arriving at 2:30 a.m. in order to practice for that. And uh, and so that's going to be that's going to be hard. But also we'll need to recruit people for for teams just to make it all happen. But I think probably the biggest cost will be the relational one. Um, you know, we used to going to the same service, the same time every single week with our friends, uh, many of whom we are in sort of small groups with and things like that. And then now some are going to be going to one service, some are going to be going to another service. Um, I had uh, I was having a conversation with a lady on Thursday night who was telling me her and her husband can't agree uh, which service they're going to go to, the 9 a.m. or the 11.30. I thought, oh, my goodness, marriages are breaking down. Um, this The cost is more severe than I realized. We've alerted our marriage kind of coaching team. So we're on high alert, and we are aware that there's going to be a sacrifice. And uh, as we look at that, uh, we're gonna, Mike and I are going to sort of over the next two weeks just look at some of the details of this and ask questions about how, how are we going to try and address the challenges and do this really, really well. But also as part of that, we want to look at how as a 7 p.m. congregation we can grow and we can be all that we're, um, you know, we want to become in, in the, the little season ahead. But before we get into the details of that, I thought it would be helpful for us as a church um, this week to just kind of step back from the detail and, and ask the big picture question which is really to do with vision. And it's a question about who is God calling us to be as Soul Survivor Watford? Now, if you are, if you are here tonight and you're, you're just joining us, 
Um, I hope some of what I'm going to say will be, I expect anyway, some of what I'm going to say will be relevant to you as well. Um, But in order to answer that question, who's God calling us to be a soul survivor Watford? Why are we even doing what we're doing? Um, I want to look at a passage that you can find in John chapter 17. And uh, the words will come up on the TV screens in a moment, so fear not if you haven't got a Bible to hand. But um, John chapter 17 is a prayer that Jesus prays. It's the longest prayer that he's recorded as praying. And I don't know about you, but when I pray, I'm really glad no one's there to hear me. So I was, uh, I was driving yesterday. I always find driving is a good time either to curse other drivers or to pray. And so I try and pray if I can. And yesterday I was praying. I had a really long drive, so I was just praying. And, um, and for me in practice, what that looked like is a lot of moaning and groaning to God about this, that, and the other, and saying sorry for things. And I'm really glad that you weren't sitting in the back seat because you would have heard the stuff that's really raw in me um, pouring out. And that's what you get to, you know, when you're eavesdropping on somebody's prayers, um, real honest prayers, not sometimes the kind of prayers we pray in front of each other, but real gut kind of like from here, belly prayers. Um, you get to see what's really going on in them. And uh, I don't know if Jesus knew this or not, but someone was hiding behind a fig tree when he was saying these prayers because they wrote them down. And we get a little glimpse into some of the things that he cares really deeply about, deeply enough to pray about, but more than that, deeply enough to pray about on this occasion. And this is the moment before he's arrested, before he's about to be crucified. So these are kind of like, these are key moments um, towards the end of his life. And so you'd have thought the things that he prayed about would be essential um, and right at the core of what he cared for. So I'm not going to read you the whole prayer. I'm just going to read you a few verses, and they're the verses where he prays for the church, where he prays for us. So this is what he says. John chapter 17, starting verse 20, says, My prayer is not for them alone. He's just prayed for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's those of us who are followers of Jesus today. That all of them, this is what he prays, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so in essence, the heart of it is Jesus is praying that we as his people would be one with him, one with the Father. We'd be a unit, that we'd be, that we'd be team, that there would be such an incredible sense of oneness between us and God. And he's also praying that we would have that same oneness with one another, that we would be one together. Now, what does that look like and how does that work in practice? Uh, let me tell you a little story about a guy called Fred. And Fred is quality guy. He is just, you know, just lovely, kind, brilliant guy. The kind of guy you would want to be friends with. He also happens to be incredibly good looking. He also happens to be incredibly wealthy and incredibly successful and very influential and powerful. Right? So there's a guy called Fred. Now one day Fred buys a house 
And he invites his mates to come over to see the house. And his mates are less than impressed at the house that Fred has bought. So they're just like, what are you doing? Fred, you're loaded. You could buy like a penthouse in central London. Why have you bought this ramshackled shack? Why are you living here? And they start taking Fred by the hand and they show him all the different parts of the house that are falling to bits. And they say to him, Fred, we've been doing some calculations and we have worked out there's a 75% chance that this house is going to fall down by the end of the year. You've made a terrible mistake. And Fred says, well, yeah, it's a bit of a project, but, you know, I like a challenge. And uh, anyways, mates leave. Time passes, and Fred gets engaged. And his mates come around. They haven't met the fiancé yet. So they come around to meet the fiancé. And uh, again, they're, they're really not impressed. They're, they're like, Fred, seriously? You could do so much better. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, uh, you know, with this, you, you, she's warm and then she's cold. And, she, you know, like she doesn't know where she's coming or she's going. And sometimes she's, she's really kind of loyal to you. And sometimes she's slagging you off. And sometimes she's quite nice. But a lot of the time, she's pretty horrible to people. And, you know, you, you really are a bit of a catch, Fred. And uh, we're not sure that this is a good idea. And they say, Fred, we've been doing some kind of calculations. We've looked at the divorce statistics today, Fred, and they're pretty bad. There is a 50% chance we would suggest that you're going to be divorced by the end of the year. And, uh, and Fred kind of just bites his tongue. Uh, this is his fiance they're talking about. So he just holds his tongue, keeps his temper, and the friends leave. And a little while later, uh, he gets them back over, this time for a dinner party. And they say, oh, Fred, you're, uh, you're not as good looking as you used to be. Is somebody, have you been boxing or something? Like Something's gone wrong here. And, and uh, Fred reaches for a cake, and they say, Fred, what are you doing going for two cakes? Um, you've put on a few. Like in the last year or two, your metabolism must be slowing down. Like You might want to take a look at that, Fred. They said, Fred, we've been doing some calculations, and uh, we reckon you're probably in the top 1% of people to have a heart attack in the next year. You really need to watch it. And you know that face that we were mentioning earlier, the cosmetic surgery down the road is having a special offer, and uh, you might want to think about sorting your body out. In fact, if I were you, I'd get a whole new body. That, he snaps at that point. He just loses it with his mates, and he stands up, and he starts saying to them, what on earth are you talking about? You, you've slagged off my house, and you don't realize that, you know what, you can't see the potential. And then he says, not only that, but you have slagged off my fiancé, my bride, and I know there's a few kinks that need to be worked out. Believe me, I know, but I think that if I love her, then that stuff will get sorted out. And then he says, and now you're telling me, you bunch of crazies, that I've got to get a new body? I can only have one body. How can I get, how can I get another body? There's lots of pictures of the church in the New Testament. One picture is the church is God's house. It's where he lives. He puts his spirit in his house, the church. Second picture is the church is God's bride. We're told there's going to be a wedding. It's in Revelation 21 where Jesus marries his bride, the church. So currently we're engaged. But the church is his bride. A third picture for the church is the church is his body. It's the body of Christ, we're told. And one of the things that I have been, gosh, reflecting on in my own life, and my own heart for the last little while is, I have to be so careful that I do not end up like Fred's mates. Taking God by the hand and taking him round and showing him everything that is wrong with his house and his body and his bride. And it's so tempting to do that. And particularly in our culture and in our context, it's so easy to get um, uh, obsessed 
with the statistics about what's happening in the church. And let me tell you, some of the statistics are not very encouraging. So the average age in the Church of England, and we're part of the Church of England, the average age of the Church of England is 62. That's the average age. Uh, 93% of the population in this country do not go to church. Of the, uh, um, you know, of people in their 20s and 30s, I can't tell you an exact number, but I can tell you it's, it's even less than that. And so it looks pretty bleak and it looks pretty hopeless from, from some angles. And even without the stats, sometimes we, we just in our hearts, we're there anyway. We've been hurt by church or church just seems so irrelevant to us or, or, or you know, things just aren't quite right. It's so easy to make a list of what's wrong with the church, isn't it? Or am I the only person that does that? You know, we could do it now, save ourselves some time later. Number one. The orange squash is either too diluted or too concentrated. No one can get it right. What is wrong with it? Number two, all the good biscuits are always gone by the time I arrive. Number three, like you can, you, whatever your church is, you can make a list that I don't like this song. I don't like that song. I don't like that preacher. I don't like this preacher. I don't, you know, like that. I don't like the way they do this. I wish they placed more emphasis on that and less emphasis on this. I wish they reversed the whole thing. Like we can make these long lists of things that, you know, we don't like about God's church. But I went back to double check what I was going to say um, tonight, and I'm pretty sure I'm right when I say it. God loves his church. He doesn't think his church is uh, perfect, like he knows we're a project, but he loves his church. And uh, we've got permission to give up on God's church when he gives up on it. And last time I checked, he hadn't done that yet. Um, I am, and I've discovered this um, in the last 10 years in a whole new way, I am basically one of Fred's mates, or I can be. I tend towards that. And I think if I'd been around when God was kind of planning his salvation of the whole world, I probably would have acted like one of Fred's mates back then as well. And so God has this kind of master plan where he, he's going to bless the whole world. And the way that he chooses to do it is not through one individual, it's through a people. So back in the Old Testament, the greatest character in the Old Testament after God is not Abraham or Moses or David. The greatest character in the Old Testament is the people of Israel. It's a people, not a person. And uh, God chooses them. And he's like, right through this people, I'm going to bless the whole earth. Now, let me tell you, if I'd been around back in the day, I would have said to the Lord, really? Them? That bunch of idiots, like you're going to choose this people? Have you read the Old Testament? If you haven't, let me tell you, Israel mess up time again and again and again. I'm like, God, what are you thinking that you would use them as a people? And then he comes as Jesus and saves us. But then what Jesus does after he's resurrected is he's like, okay, everybody, I'm going back to heaven. And now it's over to you. Now, if I were there, I would have said, Lord, that's a terrible idea. Like, I'm going to hang on to your ankles and stop you ascending to heaven. Let's get some weights. Let's hold him down. Because it's terrible. Like, don't leave us with this bunch of morons. Like, the plan for the salvation of the world cannot be left with the 12 disciples and their friends. Look at them, Lord. Look at They didn't understand a word you said when you were around. They, they let you down at all the key moments. They betrayed you. They abandoned you. They denied ever knowing you after three years of investment. They totally messed it up. Are you serious? You're going to leave like the plan for salvation with this lot? You've got to be kidding me. 
And I feel like saying the same thing to him today as I look around with my cynicism and my being a Fred's mate on. I look at the church and I think, oh my word, Lord, this plan, this lot, us here, you think this is going to save the Like, what are you thinking, Lord? You've gone, you've gone potty, but I guess when I stop and think about it, 2,000 years after he ascended to heaven, there's 2 billion Christians here on planet Earth right now, so maybe he knew what he was doing. Maybe the master actually did have a master plan after all. And the plan was never really that he would leave it to me and you. The plan was always that we'd be united with him and that we would do it with him and he would work through us. But um, I've become convinced now, mainly because I can't wriggle out of it, that the church is his plan A for bringing his message of salvation to our world. And now that I understand that, um, for me what it's become is a decision about, now that I know this is his plan, what do I want to do about it? Because I'm conscious of the fact that one day I will see him face to face. And what do I want to say in that moment? What do I want to be able to say to him, if I can speak at all? Um, I think one of the things I would love to be able to say when I see him face to face, is I would love to be able to say to him, hey, Lord, you know, in the brief window of time that you gave me, the breath that I had while I was there, that span of 80 years that went like that, while you gave me that little bit of breath, what I did is I didn't stand at a distance and throw stones at your house. I built your house. What I did with that little bit of time that you gave me was not to um, kind of like stand on the sidelines and mock your body and dismiss it for its attempts to be relevant to our culture. I got involved and I played my role. In that little window that you gave me, I didn't slag off your bride for whom you gave your life. I loved her. I want to be able to say that to her. That's one of my great ambitions in life. Um, it has been for quite some time now, but I've, I think I've realized um, since that became an ambition of mine that it's easier said than done. And that whilst the great dream captures me, the everyday reality of it sometimes feels a little bit depressing. And how does that great dream of like, okay, if we could see him at the end and, you know, and say, look, I gave myself and I invested and I, and I decided I was going to be at the center of your plan. That doesn't mean working for a church, but I was just going to give myself to a church. How does, how does that work? The way that that works in practice is it works out and is expressed in a local church community in a local context. And so lots and lots of the letters, if not most of the letters in the New Testament, are written to local churches. The one in Rome, the one in Corinth, the one in a place called Ephesus, the one in Galatia, the one in Philippi, the one in Thessalonica. If Watford had been around 2,000 years ago, I believe the one in Watford would have been on the list. But they're written to local churches in, in particular areas. And so the only way I can become an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed, that the believers would be one with the Father and one with one another, the only way I can ever to kind of live a life that is, a, is, is an expression of that is if I find myself in a local church community and I give myself to it. And um, for us, if you're part of Soul Survivor Watford, that's what I want to encourage and invite you and, and I suppose say, let's do this together as much as I can. And if you're visiting from another church, I want to encourage you to do that in your church. 
And what we're trying to do here is really what any church, I would, I would say, should try to do. But just to give you a bit of flesh on the sort of local church community we are attempting to be, and we're doing it so imperfectly, uh, you know, and we never will do it perfectly, but this is at least our aspiration, all right? We want to be a local church community that, first of all, is one with God, is one with the Father, as Jesus just prayed. And one of the ways that that works out in a local context, one of the ways that that works out in practice, is that we seek to obey him. One of the things it means is it means God is in charge of this family. When I talk about a church, I'm not talking about an organization, I'm not talking about an establishment, I'm not talking about a denomination, I'm talking about a people. And in this instance, a local community. God is in charge of this community. The head of our church is Jesus. He's the boss. And um, that's how it's meant to be. So we're told, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this to another local church 2,000 years ago. Uh, he, he talks about the different gifts that people have in the body and how they can use them. And then he says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you hear that? Jesus is the head. Jesus is in charge. And so I need you to know if you're part of this church that the bottom line for us as a community will never be clever human strategy. It just won't be. And the bottom line for us will not be the, the latest marketing technique that you can, believe me, get from church conferences where they say, if you do these things, then everything will work out for you. That's never going to be the bottom line. The bottom line for us will never be what the church down the road is doing, even if the church down the road is doing fantastic things. And that none of those things are bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a strategy. But what I'm saying is the bottom line for us must always be what is the Holy Spirit telling us to do? And then we'll work out our strategy. But, but let's work it out based on what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. And that's, I think, one of the, the way in which we become one with God. And we become one in lots of ways, all right? We talked about it last week in a totally different context, being one in Jesus and what that means. But one of the ways we seek to um, mature in our unity with him, to put it another way, is that we seek to obey him. You know, I think one of the great examples of the oneness of Jesus and the Father comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before Jesus is going to be arrested and be taken to his death, he has this moment of agony where he's like, I don't want to do it. Why would you want to be crucified? I don't want to be separate from the Father. Why would you want to be separate from the Father? So he's wrestling in this internal agony, and he says to the Father, I really would rather not do this. But then he goes on to say, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. And right there, that's the example of the oneness of the Son with the Father. I don't want to do this. All I can see as I, as I look towards this is pain and suffering. But because you are saying so, Father, then I, because you say so, I will do it. 
And for us as a church family, and this will be true of whatever church you come from, there come moments in church communities where the Lord speaks if we would listen to him. And then he'll tell us things, sometimes things we don't want to be told. Sometimes go here and do that. And when we, when we hear him say it, often all we can see is the cost. Often all we can see is like, oh my word, this is going to, you know what, we're really, really very comfortable here. And if we do that, it's going to become uncomfortable for us. And we're going to have change and nobody likes change. And, and you see the cost. And then we have this moment of, okay, would I rather do what I want to do or am I going to choose to submit to what you want to do? And in there is the oneness. It's like our, our paths are like, there's a fork in the path. And as we say, not our will, but yours be done. I think we mature in our unity with him as we seek to obey him. And um, just, to, just to give you one example of how that is earthed for us here. You'll know if you're part of the church that we run conferences every summer. And uh, we just finished the final uh, summer of conferences, 27 years they've been going. This final summer, we had five conferences, 30,000 people attended those conferences over the five of them. We saw something like roughly like 2,000 people give their lives to Jesus um, over those conferences. All Jesus doing it, but it was a we had front row seats. And we saw the Lord, the Holy Spirit, do all sorts of amazing things. And it was incredible. And we just stopped them. Now, on a human level, that does not make sense. Let me tell you something. On a, on a strategy level, that's a terrible move. You've got something that's working. You keep it going as long as you can. Um, but the truth is, and people have often asked us over the last 18 months, why, why are you stopping? Honestly, I'd love if, if I could give you a clever answer, I would. But the honest answer is because he told us to stop. And don't get me wrong, that wasn't one person in a room having an isolated feeling on which we made this massive decision. It was a huge decision, so we wrestled with it for a long time. And those of us who were part of the leadership team, we, we felt, after a long period of discernment and wrestling, unanimous, that we felt like God was telling us this is the time to stop. Um, we'd always said that when the Holy Spirit says stop, we'd like to think we had the courage to stop. We then took it to our trustees, the ones that oversee the charity, and we said, this is what we think he's saying. Would you help us figure it out? Um, they went on a journey with us, and they came to a point where unanimously they felt also that the Holy Spirit was telling us to stop. As part of this, we had a whole consultation process with, with good friends who know us and who love us and who've walked with us and whose wisdom we trust. And again, we felt the Spirit saying through them that it was the right decision. And then on top of that, we had people coming up to us with prophetic words People had no idea the journey that we were going on as a team. But, but, you know, totally out of the blue, coming up with prophetic word after prophetic word that just confirmed that this was what the Lord was saying. So he made himself very, very clear. And then it really just became a question of, are we going to obey you or not? And, um, and that's why we made that decision, because, because the Holy Spirit is the boss and nobody else is. And so we'll go where we're told. Now, one of the things that really excited me about, about those words is that they weren't just about something coming to an end. They were about new things beginning. And I'm so excited to see what God is going to do um, as people start youth conferences, and lots of people are, next summer. I'm really excited to see how they go further and better than Soul Survivor ever could or would. But also, the words were for us as a church. And that's what gets, gets me super excited. You know, they, they were saying that God is, is doing a new thing, and part of that new thing is here. It's here. Now, he's doing wonderful things all over. Um, if only we would hear the stories. But he's doing something here too. And his, his grace 
is with us. It's not to say it's not with others, but it's just to enjoy the fact that his grace is with us. And I'm expecting for what's going to happen over the next little while. But um, for us as a bottom line, it's we want to be obedient to him. And the main thing he's saying to us at the moment is that we are as a family to make room for more. So here's the point. The goal is not to become a bigger church. The goal is to be obedient to him. It's to be one with him. That's one thing we're seeking to be as a community. Here's a second one. Jesus prays that we'd be one with the Father and him. He also prays that we would be one with one another. And uh, that we would be united. And the main activity, as far as I can tell from my reading in the New Testament, that the church is told to do is what I like to call one anothering one another. And so there's all these different bits where they're told, forgive one another, love one another, encourage one another, spur one another on, um, bear one another's burdens. It's like again and again and again and again, they're told to spend their time one anothering one another. And we become one when we one another one another. That's how it works. And um, one of the things that brings me a lot of joy, I think, is when I read the letters to these churches that are there in the New Testament. You should take some time if you've never read them. Because what you discover as you look at these local churches from 2,000 years ago is they were messy. You know, they were messy places. They did not have it all sorted out. So the church in Galatia, um, they'd forgotten that they were saved by grace. And so they thought it was, became all about what they did. And Paul had to say, no, 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 you've made a terrible mistake here. The church in Corinth, boy, did that have problems. We, every time I feel like we've got issues, I read the uh, letters to the church in Corinth, and it cheers me up because I think, well, at least we're not doing that. So in Corinth, like, people in their church were just sleeping with their mother-in-law, and other people were like, yeah, that's fine. There's no problem with that. And uh, Paul's like, no, this is not cool. Uh, in Corinth, they used to have like bring and share communion where people would bring food, but they just wouldn't share it. So they would all bring their food and all the poor people would have no food to eat. And all the rich people would be like, whoa, I'm so happy here with my KFC. And uh, Paul would be like, not cool. Like this is not, this is not the idea of church. And so they've got problems and they're messy. And, um, uh, and yeah, that's the reality of church. And that's where it's lived out. And the whole idea of one anothering one another Honestly, I'm telling you, the only place it happens is in real local community where we're committed and we're involved. And it is messy, and it can be ugly, and it can be raw, and it can be gritty, but it's the place it happens, and it's where life is found, and it's glorious as well. That was for effect. <laughs> the train driver was like, hallelujah! But like, this is, this is wedding season that we're in right now, okay? So, so we've, we've had, like, I had a wedding yesterday, I had a wedding the week before, we've got a wedding in two weeks. Steph and Ash, where are you? There they are. Um, so anyway, it's wedding season. And uh, one of the things that, that um, sometimes I do is I, I speak at people's weddings and they say, oh, can you, you know, speak into marriage and blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, oh, okay then. So one of the things that I say occasionally is that... Um, I say, listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, especially on a wedding day, but um, you are here and you both look spectacular. You know, I've, you know, I've never seen you looking this good in your entire lives. Congratulations. Um, and, and everything is perfect. It's all about you. You're going to go off and you're going to have this great reception. It's going to be a real party there. Everyone's going to say nice things about you and toast you. And then after that, it's just going to get better because you're going to go on honeymoon. You're going to have a wonderful time on honeymoon. Then you're going to come home and it's going to get even better because when you walk through the door, the John Lewis van that's got all your gift list in is going to pull up outside your house and you're going to be like, ah! presents and you're going to have boxes and boxes of stuff just turn up at your house more presents in that 
kind of like 15 minutes than you'll get in the next 15 years. And they're boring presents because gift lists always are. It's like spoons and plates and you, you know, utensils, but you won't care. You'll be excited and you'll just be like, these are our married spoons and these are our married plates. Wah! You know, and you'll throw bubble wrap in the air and you'll be so thrilled about that. And, and so it's all going to feel like good and you'll be like, wow, marriage has solved all my issues and this is so perfect and it's everything I ever dreamed it would be. And then what will happen? And I can't tell you exactly when it will happen, but it will happen at some stage. Is you will wake up next to the perfect person that you married. And you will realize that they are, in fact, not perfect. And what's worse is you will realize that they are thinking the same thing about you. And in that moment, that's where marriage starts. And uh, Beth and I had the same experience that everybody else had. So I remember the first argument that we ever had. Sounds a bit random. But we moved into our house together, and uh, we had a massive argument about the toilet roll holder. That's right. Because we didn't have one, and we were trying to decide where to put it. And um, uh, I felt like the toilet was just a bit too close to the wall for us to put it on the wall. I couldn't really get a good swing on the old toilet roll. And, uh, and Beth was like, no, no, I want it on the wall. And I was like, well, let's not have it on the wall because that's not going to work. Let's have it on a stick. So we end up having this full-on argument for like about half an hour. And I can still remember kind of like how it ended because Beth, like a barrister building her case, kind of worked towards this crescendo at the end. And then at the end, she just screamed at me, I wasn't raised in a stick family. And she slammed the door. <laughs> True story. We got a basket. We compromised. We got a basket. But, um, you know, I remember thinking, oh, my word, this is real marriage here. We've arrived. And it's, it's strange when, you, when you're in it because you think, oh, man, now I've got to work out how do I live out these vows that I've made to this other person forever, that I'm never, ever going to leave them. Now I've discovered that they're actually selfish and that I've discovered that I'm much more selfish than I ever realized. But that's where you mature and that's where the growth happens. And we can, we, can, you know, we can talk a good game. Wouldn't it be wonderful to look into the eyes of Jesus and say, I loved your bride and I built your body, you know, all that stuff. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, it would be amazing. Do you know what that happens in a local church? With people who are broken and so will hurt you. Just as you are broken and will hurt them. It's hard and it's gritty, but it's also glorious and it's life-giving. That's where it happens. Um, don't wait around to find a church that is perfect. You will never find one. And it's been said that if you did find one, you couldn't join it because you'd spoil it. As would I. So we just have to get on with what we've got, which is this. And we do that. So we want to be one as a, as a, you know, as a church here with God. We do that by seeking to obey him. We want to be one with one another. We do that by loving one another and all the other one another's um, in the gritty reality of life. But then there's a fruit that comes from this. And again, we saw it in the, in the prayer that Jesus prayed. I don't know if you noticed, but two times he talks about what the world will do when this prayer gets answered. So he says, you know, as we're one with him and the Father, he says, the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, as we're one with God, the world gets 
who Jesus is. And then the second thing he says is, as we're one with one another, the world gets who Jesus is. So one of the fruits of this, of our being one with God and one with each other, and see he's lived that out, is that the world suddenly has its eyes open to the reality that Jesus is who the scripture says he is. In other words, this is not for us. It's, you know, we get blessed as we do this, but this is for the world outside of us. It's, it's for the sake of those who are not yet part of us. That's what it is to be part of church. I read just a couple of days ago on the BBC that it was this article about the enduring appeal of Friends. You know the TV show Friends? And it was like, it was like how is it that you know, Friends is on Netflix now and it's one of the most streamed programs on Netflix in the last year? And what they're saying is that people who watched it in their 90s, you know, in the 90s, their kids are now watching Friends you know, in 2019, and they're loving it. And yes, it's a bit dated in some respects, but actually there's still this, this massive appeal of it. And it was trying to work out why is, why is everybody still watching this program? What is it about the program? And I think at no small part of the answer is the fact that this bunch of friends in the middle of New York, they, they end up functioning like a family. And, uh, you know, while you watch it, you feel like you're one of the gang. You feel like you're part of the family, and who doesn't want to feel like they're part of the family? Um, but I remember watching the whole of... Um, Friends, like a little while ago, a couple of years ago, I was like, I must do some research. So I watched all 10 series of Friends. And, uh, um, and I noticed one of the things that I picked up that I'd forgotten from the first time around when I watched it was not a lot actually happens in Friends. You know, for 10 seasons worth of uh, episodes. Like, I mean, there's like Ross and Rachel kind of get together towards the beginning. And then most of the next eight seasons are about, will they get back together? I don't even know. And, um, you know, Monica and Chandler hook up. And, and that's basically all that happens. Like, by the end, if you look at the difference between the beginning of the story and the end of the story, that's all there is to say for, for like 10 seasons of Friends. And, um, and they drink a lot of coffee. That's the other thing. They've drunk an awful lot of coffee, but nothing else has happened. And I was just thinking about that, and, and there is a massive difference. You know, we talk about church as family, and we talk about how people are drawn to family, and all of that is so true. And Jesus tells us that the world will know that you're my disciples by the way you love each other. So being, being loving one another, one anothering one another, is one of the most evangelistic, missional things we can ever do in a world that's dying in loneliness. But we must not lose fact as, as we place our emphasis on preferring and learning loving and serving each other don't lose sight of the fact that this is for those who are not yet part of us this is not sitting around in central park having a coffee and enjoying one another's company for its own sake it is doing that and churches are meant to do that but that is not church sitting around having food together is and talking about how much we all love each other and we love jesus if it stops there that's a dinner party. Churches are meant to have dinner parties, but dinner parties are not churches. Because it's this, we're doing this for the sake of those who are not yet part of us. The church exists for the benefit of its non-members, for those who are outside of us. And um, that does involve sacrifice. It really does. But it's also, it's, it's, like it's where the adventure is, and it's where the fruit is found. And really, why would you want to do it if you weren't in it for that? Um, Mike goes and visits different churches in different parts of the world, coming into land. But he, um, you know, he, go, he told me about this church he went to see in Brazil a little while ago. He's been back since, uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And it's just on the border of this shanty town, this favela. 
um, that was incredibly deprived. And the, uh, the crime rate in this particular shanty town was really, really horrifically high, highest per head for the whole district or something. And there was a horrific number of murders. And this church just really felt like we're meant to get involved. You know, we're meant to, we're meant to be salt and light, as it were, in this, in this area. And so they were like, well, the only way we're going to be able to do that is as a community. So as a community, they, they did it. And those who had different skills brought the skills. So if the skill was, I've got some time, to give and I've got some you know, energy, then I'll, I'll make sandwiches or I'll sit with these people and pray with them. Or if they had professional skills, if they were a lawyer, it was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll be a legal representative for someone who can't afford it. Or if they're a medic, it'll be like, okay, I'll provide free healthcare for people that can't afford it. And they loved, they loved that community as a community. And what happened is um, a number of years later, 16,000 people have given their lives to Jesus in that um, Flavella. Now, 85% of that um, um, shantytown are followers of Jesus, and churches have sprung up all over the place. Now, how did that happen? It happened because a community of very normal people decided to be a community for the community outside of them, for those who are not yet part of them. And that is the fruit. And I, I, I'm utterly convinced, because I see it in the book, that if we live like this, if you're part of this church and we seek to go for it, if you're part of your church and you seek to go for it, if we live like this, we will see the fruit that Jesus talks about in lives changed. People sometimes say, should we emphasize being the church out there in the world, you know, like in your nine to five ministry, Monday to, you know, Monday to Saturday, or should we emphasize what we do when we gather here together? And honestly, that is like asking, should I breathe in or should I breathe out? You know, it's both. As we go out and we seek to be Jesus and salt and light in the world, then we bring back the stories of victories and defeats to, to spur one another on. And as we spur one another on and worship, then we're equipped to go out. It's a virtuous circle. And here was the great, you know, the picture of Jesus saying, you're salt and light. How powerful is one grain of salt? Can you taste that? You put a whole load of salt, there's a difference, but one grain's not going to do a lot. You know when you're flying on an airplane at night and you look down, you're over the countryside, you can see like one light or something like that. It's hardly, it's hardly blowing, you know. But then you, drive, you, you fly over a city and there's all this massive collection of lights and suddenly it's like, oh my word, the darkness is really getting beaten back now. And that's the picture is that we would do this as community, that it's not I'm salt and you're salt and I'm light and you're light individually, it's that we together are light, we together are salt, and as we do this together, we see change. Um, we're going to talk about the practical ways that that kind of vision is grounded and, and going to be worked out over the next month and a half here um, at Soul Survivor Watford, and, uh, um, but that's the vision. That would be one with him, one with each other, for those who are not yet part of us. And I just want you to be aware of that, and let's have that at the forefront of our minds, because um, as much as we can, every decision that we're making is an attempt to get there.